All right. Well, um, it's been a it's been a bit of a crazy week. Uh, honestly, when when crazy weeks happen, you sort of want to look into uh, what's going on and and. Even prepping for this message, I was starting to feel like the Lord was shaping something in my heart as the week went on uh, to teach this morning, to share, and, and uh, throughout the week kind of hitting some roadblocks. And I ended up in the ER on Friday. I've got some, some kind of infection working on me that is doing some things to me and making me shaky enough to need to sit down for the time. Um, last night, my wife and I were in bed. We got a call from Jeremy as he was getting off of work. Uh, about 10 o'clock, and his car was doing something weird. Uh, so I went and met him in Agora Hills. His catalytic converter had gotten stolen while he was uh, working. And uh, so I stayed out with him and got the sheriff's report filed and all that type of thing. And it just, it was, it was sort of like this discouraging, embattled week. And yet this message was um, sort of throughout the week growing in its importance and significance. And so you sort of have these conflicting feels even coming into a Sunday of feeling weary and worn out and frustrated, yet at the same time, this growing hunger to see God's word. Uh, and so I, I think even just before I share, I want to encourage you. I, it'd be a good time to ask the Lord if there's something he wants to do in you today. Like even now as you're sitting there, it'd be a good thing to just sort of take a, a brief moment and say, okay, Lord, Maybe this is something that you're shaping in me. Maybe what's going on in Matt is something that you're wanting to stir up uh, and bring to, to my attention. And I just, I trust the Lord moves. He works. We're not just doing this to twiddle our thumbs and show up every week and try and figure out the next thing. Like this is, this is more than that. We are being equipped and shaped and readied for the most important work on earth to bring the name of Jesus to people that don't yet know him. There is no greater task. And so we don't just show up and hope that church is decent and hope that we have a good time and see some people that we like and avoid the people we don't like and then get out of here for lunch. It's, there's something more going on. We have to find what God has for us. And I want to I encourage us to, to seek that. Um, and so even, even today, we're, the text we're going to go through, it's a long text, and there are a lot of things that uh, we can pick up from this text, and there are some that we have to, to leave down just because it's a lot to go through. Um, and there are three things in particular. I'm going to read through the text, and, uh, and then we'll kind of walk through it. But there are three things in particular that I really felt like the Lord was highlighting and just putting a spotlight of attention on that I feel like we need to pay careful attention to as a church. And so we'll kind of talk through those things. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to John chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 28 all the way through chapter 19, verse 15. If you need a Bible, by the way, we have them in the aisles. They're in boxes. You can just kind of nudge somebody next to you, and they'll pass a Bible down your way. I uh, would love for you to have a Bible in your hands if you would like one. But uh, John chapter 18 is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chapter 18. Okay, starting in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's called a non-answer, by the way. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thrones and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He had entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabata. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So three things that I want to identify, highlight, spend time with as we walk through this together. Uh, The first is the the question, how does an innocent man die? So we're actually going to kind of process through just the the set of circumstances around Jesus, a perfect, sinless human being, also God in the flesh, being put forth to die. Okay, so that's one. The second, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said that. My kingdom is not of this world. We're going to process a bit uh, about what that means for us to, as we think about being followers of Jesus, what does it mean that his kingdom is not of this world? And then the third one, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We're going to look at uh, what led to that statement and what, what we do with that, okay? So that's where we're going to be going today. First up, how does an innocent man die? There's an interesting set of circumstances going on that, that leads to the death of Jesus. And the first is that Jesus himself was presented by God. 
If you remember, one of the main points that we've been talking about is that John's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying, look, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. And he wants to make sure that we understand Jesus isn't just some guy. He's not just some person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, dwelling among us. Yet somehow he made his way through two different justice systems and ended up on a cross being crucified. And the reality is for a lot of people that could have been a disconnect with Jesus. Like, well, I was sort of into his teaching and his miracles were pretty amazing, but then he got crucified. So there must have been something wrong with him. And John is saying, look, that crucifixion was actually not the doing of the Romans. It was not the doing of the Jews. But that was God's will that Jesus would die. And it happens from time to time that God uses the hardness of humanity, the brokenness of humanity to bring about his will. You may have been on the receiving end of that or the contributing end of that at some point in your life where God used your hardness or the the hardness of somebody else's heart to actually bring about his purpose in your life. And it's simultaneously devastating and beautiful. And it's hard to wrap our heads around it. And that's the reality of Jesus going to the cross. One of the most profound injustices, I'll take away the one of the most, the most profound injustice in all of human history. And here's how it happened. Israel wanted to kill Jesus. They believed that he had blasphemed. And that, according to their law, was worthy of death. But that was part of the issue was that, yes, they believed he had blasphemed, but even before that, they had hardened their hearts towards Jesus. Years before Jesus was presented to die, uh, John the Baptist had showed up on the scene and started preaching out in the wilderness, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he invited them to repent, and he told them, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Live with a soft heart. You need to live with a soft heart. If God's going to do something here, it's going to come from a repentant heart. It's going to come from a soft heart. John the Baptist was laying the groundwork for Jesus to plant the seeds of the gospel of the kingdom into Israel, and yet their hearts were hardened. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt, whose heart was hardened to bring about a redemptive story, Israel's heart was hardened to bring about A powerful moment in human history. But here's the crazy thing. Israel didn't have the authority to kill Jesus on their own. If they had killed Jesus on their own, they would have gotten in trouble by Rome. Israel was an occupied nation. They didn't have the freedom to carry out their own justice. That was not their rights as an occupied nation. Now, Rome gave a lot of leeway. The the Roman strategy, because they expanded so far and wide, and no, we're not going to go full Western Civ on you. Uh, Their strategy as they went far and wide was to take over, to conquer a land, and then once they had conquered that land, to allow it to maintain its language, its religious practices, its business, its culture, and they would slurp taxes off of that land, and that's how Rome got rich and bigger is they didn't feel the need to enforce Roman values and Roman way of life in every place that they went. They let those places continue. So that's why you have Israel looking like Israel in the first century, while Pilate is the governor, while there's Roman centurions everywhere, while Matthew the tax collector is stealing from all his countrymates. It was a weird season in Israel's story. It's not new. Out of the last 800 years of Israel's existence, from this point in Jesus' time, they had been occupied for about 700 of them by different nations, by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. 
So they'd experienced a lot of occupation, and some of those clamped down harder, and others, like Rome, actually gave some room. And that's why Israel had sort of fallen in love with Rome, because they had power and position. And they were worried that if they stand with Jesus, then Rome will take away both our nation and our place. That's what they said back in in John 13. And so there was this fear in the leaders of Israel that if we don't put Jesus down, Rome is going to actually take away what we have. This is going to be counted as an uprising, and Rome is going to crush us. That was the fear. But more than that, Israel had just spent generations, spent generations being hardened to the gospel. They had lost sight of Yahweh. They had killed prophets. They had spoiled the temple. There had been generations of this nation running away from God, and now it manifests in this moment where it didn't take much for God to harden their hearts and for them to turn on the Messiah, the promise that they were to receive. Okay? So that's one side, Israel. Now we have Rome. Rome is an occupying nation, and it's not their habit to just torture and kill everybody. They, were not, they didn't rule with an iron fist. So they weren't sitting there just looking for people to kill and waiting for the next opportunity to crucify somebody. It was a form of capital punishment that they used, but they used it to enforce law and order. They used it to maintain civilization. And yes, they were firm because they were spread thin, but they weren't just actively crucifying every Jewish person that they could get their hands on. There was a bit of letting the Israelites be Israel. And so we have this interesting situation where Rome's not like, you know, trigger happy when it comes to crucifixions. And we see that in Pilate's posture. Six different times, Pilate tries to turn Jesus back over to the Jews. Six. He's like, look, I find no guilt in him. Take him yourselves. I don't see anything wrong here. I'm not, I don't want any part of this. Like six different times, Pilate tries to hand him back. It's a really interesting situation. Now, the Romans aren't totally free. You see they flog him. And that's just the reality is there was also a sadism. They weren't believers and they weren't that compassionate. They weren't just trying to mend fences between Israel and Jesus. It it was more just trying to keep the peace. But when it came down to it, the Israelites knew how to paint Pilate into a corner. They used political leverage to make sure that he did what they wanted him to do. And the line that they used was this. They said, if you don't do this, you are no friend of Caesar's because there can be no king but Caesar. So they're just sitting there painting him into a political corner where if Pilate doesn't crucify Jesus, the Jews, maybe they go above Pilate and they report to Rome that Pilate's not keeping order and he's not tamping down uprisings and Pilate loses his position and his governorship and so he, he found himself trapped. He didn't necessarily want to kill Jesus, but Jesus' life was not worth his power. And so you have Israel that was power hungry and you have Pilate who is power hungry, and you have God who is trying to redeem Israel and Rome and all of that power hungry humanity, including us. And to this day, all of the power hungry humanity, every terrible person, every abuser, every criminal, every oligarch, every person that's, that's tried to do wicked or rule the world or do whatever, Jesus went to the cross for the enemies of God. God put him forth and he used the hardness of Israel and the hardness of Rome to bring about the most beautiful redemption story that has ever been known.
I just wanted you to see just how the circumstances needed to be for this to take shape. God's sovereign timing is powerful. It is an amazing story when, honestly, take a Western Civ class and just see where Jesus fits in the entire span of Western history. It is unreal to watch how it unfolds with Jesus at the, I'll say the word crux, and that's on purpose, at the cross, at the linchpin of human history. Jesus was an innocent man, the only one that ever lived. And he died a wicked and terrible and brutal, torturous death so that you and I could be no longer enemies of God. He used enemies of God to make it so that we would not be anymore. And even some of those people that crucified Jesus, this is why Paul's story is so important. He was one of the ones that was attacking Christians, that was crucifying Jesus, that was killing these people. He was a, uh, a, an apprentice to Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the Pharisees that put Jesus out there. And yet Paul's story is redeemed and brought to this place of calling Jesus Lord and King. It's beautiful. Okay, so Jesus, an innocent man, died for our sins. The next thing, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus and Pilate are having a conversation uh, and Jesus says, he says, or Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus' response is this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. He's kind of discounting Peter with that one. Like, yeah, that didn't really count as fighting. That was a mistake. I healed the ear. We're clear. He's saying this. Look, I am a king of a different kind of kingdom. You and I need to hear this. We need to understand that Jesus' kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. We need that in our brains, in our hearts, at all times. This affects our posture as believers. It affects how we approach the world as believers. It changes our worldview as believers when we understand that the kingdom of God is not of this world. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Jesus showed up on the scene preaching from the very beginning, my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom. He preached something called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And that's this. The kingdoms of this world, they rise and fall, but there is an eternal kingdom with God ruling and reigning and bringing authority that will come to bear on earth as it is in heaven. This is the ultimate story of redemption is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus started teaching some things like when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, okay, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our whole prayer life is centered around, God, we want your kingdom that exists, your rule, your reign to make its way onto earth. But it doesn't come by force. It comes by obedience. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the way of the kingdom of God is people living the way of God. Living God's way here on earth brings his kingdom presence. It doesn't come by force. It doesn't come by attack. And in fact, Jesus says, you know my kingdom's not of this world because they would have tried to keep me out of your hands. But they didn't. Because my kingdom's coming in a different way. Because it's a different kind of kingdom. 
So let's talk about what that means for us. We spent 2020 walking through the books of Daniel and 1 Peter to try and teach this idea that we are exiles in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're here on temporary assignment. Doesn't matter if you're a citizen of the U.S. or of Argentina or of Czechoslovakia. Is that still a country? Czech Republic. Doesn't matter where you are a citizen, where your modern-day passport comes from, that's not your identity if you're a follower of Jesus. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you are here on temporary assignment. We had some friends of ours at our house on uh, Tuesday night. They stayed the night with us. They are South Africans who are currently living in Dubai. Their daughter goes to Westmont, so they came out for Parents Weekend. And so they stayed at our house, and we were talking with them, and they shared a story about, uh, we do a conference for a bunch of churches in Malibu in September, and they were talking about trying to get their 21-year-old son to come out for that, uh, for that conference in September. And they said, we went to get a visa for him to come out. I'm like, I haven't even started planning this conference yet. It's, you know, April. They said, we went to get a visa for him. And the first appointment that we can get to get a visa is in October. So we'll miss the entire conference just to get a visa for a South African to come to the U.S., we don't really think about this because I don't know if you travel internationally, you flash your passport, you get into other countries. It's sort of a, a beautiful thing about being an American citizen. We can get into a lot of countries really easily with our passport and we don't have to think about visas. Uh, people in other countries, they have to apply for them. Those visas expire. They have to declare on those visas their purpose for entering that nation. So you have to say, I'm here on work, I'm here on travel, I'm here uh, for studying. You have to declare your intended purpose for being in that place. Here's why I share this story. We are here on a visa. Like As followers of Jesus, you are in this world on a visa and you have to declare your intended purpose for being here. I just want you to picture having to write down for the authorities why are you here? And you have to put that on your visa and say, I'm here on mission. Now, you're, you might say, okay, wait, hold on. And I, this is a, an important thing worldview-wise for us to understand. If his kingdom is not of this world, it's an important thing for us to understand. We say we're a part of an apostolic story. And you might think that sounds weird. What are apostles? Those are the guys that wrote the scripture. The word apostolos in the Greek means sent one. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So you are a sent one, meaning you have an apostolic story. You have an apostolic life. And before you get too creeped out by that, you may have heard a preacher say, we're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. You don't have to go to a foreign land to be a missionary. Well, I want to blow your mind for just a minute. The word apostle and the word missionary one is Greek, one is Latin. They're the exact same word. So an apostle and a missionary are both a sent one. It's the same exact concept. It's the same exact word. There is no difference. So if you're freaked out by the word apostle, you should also be freaked out by the word missionary. If you're freaked out by the word missionary, uh, let me introduce you to the scriptures and go back to square one. Let's start in Christianity 101. We are here on purpose, on a mission. Every single one of us. Heaven was never designed to wrap up with you. The eternal life was not, you weren't the last one to receive it. It's designed to go to you and then through you so that other people can experience the grace of God. You are here on purpose and your stated purpose on that visa is 
to be an emissary or an ambassador for the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. And so I just want to give you that when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, that has an implication for all of us. That means that our citizenship, because he's our king, if we're followers of Jesus, our citizenship is elsewhere and we're here. We went through Daniel, we went through 1 Peter, we started in Jeremiah 29, because the idea of being in exile, there's an impact on how we live here. We're citizens of the U.S., we have place in California, we have place in Thousand Oaks, maybe you're a part of a school board, those types of things. We have, we have responsibilities within our local citizenship while we're here. But this is not who we are. And that citizenship takes priority. It informs how we do our life here. And so that's what it means that his kingdom is not of this world. And that's how that shapes and impacts us. Okay, last thing. They say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. As the trial continues, Pilate pulls Jesus back. He flogs him, puts a crown of thorns. Not he personally, but the guards flog him. They mock him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put a purple robe on him. Now, again, you might be thinking Pilate looked a little bit compassionate. He wasn't compassionate. Pilate was trying to maintain the power balance just like everybody. There's a hardness of heart. We're going to go through Romans starting in September, the book of Romans. We'll go through it starting in September you're going to see in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Doesn't matter if you are pagan. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish by history and by nationality. Doesn't matter if you are a religious Jew. All fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Right? The, the first three chapters of the book of Romans are Paul painting the canvas black and just showing how there's none righteous, not even one. The entire thing is death. All of us. Every human being. Pilate demonstrates the Gentile side of that. Israel, in this, in this hyper scene, represents the Jewish side of that. And I want to make something abundantly clear. Uh, for generations, there's been a struggle where people have allowed anti-Semitism to flow because of the way that John writes this, uh, this gospel. There have been people that have looked at this and still felt anger in their hearts towards Jews for how they treated Jesus. That is a highly inappropriate way of reading the scriptures. You can't get to anti-Semitism from reading this. This is John representing what took place in these people to bring about, ultimately, the story of God. And I want to tell you this. Your heart and my heart and their heart are exactly the same. Now let's talk about how we get there. Okay, the core illness that Israel was dealing with, when they say, crucify him, we have no king with Caesar, the core illness that they were dealing with was their heart. Jesus had taught a couple of different things, and, and uh, one of them came out of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus teaches about money. This is just money as an example, but he says this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, John will actually expand that past money in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. John writes and he says this. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's the reality of, what, of what's being taught in the scriptures is that each of us has a decision to make. And this is what the gospel's at. I'm going to stand up now. I think I've got it. 
This is one of those moments where you just kind of got to feel the move a little bit. <laughs> okay, that hurt. Um, you look at something like them saying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king for Caesar. And our, our thoughts just go to, how in the world did they get to that place? How did Israel, who knew God and knew the story, how did they get to that place where they would say something like that? And, and there are two things to this. One is that they were generations deep in having said, away with him. They had been saying that for years. Their, they, their parents had said that. Their grandparents had said that. They were generations deep, and they had found this love for the position that they were in, and it was so in front of their faces that they wanted to maintain it. They didn't want to lose what they had. They had nation and they had place. We have identity. We have something we can, we can hold on to. And before, again, before we look at them and just say, well, I would, I would never do that, the reality is every single day you and I face challenges of the allegiances of our heart. Every day. Every day we are deciding between choosing to love God and live obediently to him and living with whatever the worldly consequences are that may come from that devotion to God or we're choosing to love the things of the world. Every day we have to face those choices. And if you're like me, there are times that we love God and follow him and obey him. And there are times that we love the world and choose the world and follow that. And Jesus teaches this. He says, look, here's the reality. You can't serve two masters. There is a battle for your heart. And this is what Jesus has been preaching from the outset. He's not trying to get you to just add on Jesus to all the other things that are important to you and just make a, make a little bit of a habit out of getting to church. It's why we never guilt you into being at church or giving money as a church. That is because so, those two things have been associated with religious behavior for eons. Giving money to the church and church attendance have been associated with, you know, kind of church guilt. And the pastor expects me to be there and I'm supposed to go to church. That is so far from the gospel of God. I don't care if you show up here for my sake. We can live on nothing if you don't want to give a dime. We will do this every single day without anything in the bank because we believe in what God has asked us to do. You have no obligation to be here or to give money or to do any kind of religious practices under any circumstances at all. If you feel that from us, hear me now. Ring that out of your mind. That is not the gospel and that is not our message as a church. Being here is not an exercise in religion, making a practice out of doing something with regularity. This is called the body of Christ in the scriptures because it is an expression of the people who call Jesus Lord. They come together to rejoice in his name, 
to devote themselves to what the word of God has to say. I want this to feed my soul. I want this to inform my worldview. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want my soul to be shaped by God. I want to submit to my brothers and sisters out of reverence for Christ. Jesus loved me enough to call these my brothers and sisters and said, deal with them. Forgive each other, bear each other's burdens, love each other. That's going to show the world that God is really big. Us walking together and dealing with life together, that's going to show the world that God is big and true and good. This stuff is out of the overflow of the realization that God is good and that we love him. I say that because there's this challenge in us to choose God in our day-to-day lives. You can look at something when it says, do not love the world or the things of this world. You can say, "That's that's a steep call. That's a high bar. How can anybody live this life without loving the things of this world? I said that Israel was generations deep. We're generations deep. We are generations deep in a people that that love Jesus and money, Jesus and liberty, Jesus and economy, Jesus and, and we fill it in. We love so much stuff in addition to Jesus and we justify it. We make it a noble expression of our faith. We allow ourselves to devote ourselves to lots of things and we've spread ourselves out beyond what the call of God is on us to love God. So it is a steep call for John to say, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we look at that and say, well, who, who, can, who can be there? This is a good thing to stir up in you. Well, is anybody perfect? And the answer to that question is no. I am desperately hoping it's no because I know I'm not perfect and I really want the bar to be at least where I'm at. (laughs) This isn't a call to perfection, but it's a call to soften our hearts to what God has for us to stir us to be repentant people. To be people that want at all times to be purified by the presence of God, sanctified by the presence of God. Do you know what it means to be sanctified? The word sanctus in Latin means holy. You're being holified. You're being made holy. That process takes Time and effort, and it's uncomfortable. Over and over, the scriptures use this picture of the refiner's fire to talk about our purification, our sanctification as believers. I don't know if you're silversmiths or goldsmiths. Anybody uh, amateur or professional in those? No. We don't really see the refiner's fire unless we watch how it's made. Uh, It's just one of those things that we don't get a chance to see, but it's this really hot flame that goes under silver or gold or some other precious metal, and what happens is it melts the metal down to liquid and the imperfections rise to the surface and they skim the imperfections off the top and then they allow the metal to reform. 
and is a more purified and more valuable version of that precious metal than what existed before. And the scriptures talk about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as the refining fire. I'll tell you this, I don't want to be the same person tomorrow that I was yesterday. I don't. I don't want to be the same person five years from now that I was five years ago. That's where midlife crises are born. When we start to feel like there's no progress, like there's no movement, like we're not going anywhere, and there is nothing in the gospel that says that you should not be in motion at all times being refined by the presence of God. Because guess what? His fire doesn't stop burning. He does not stop sanctifying you. He doesn't stop purifying you, preparing you for the next day and the next day. And one of the challenges that we run into is one of the challenges that Israel ran into. Their repentance happened a thousand years ago. Some prophet, some priest in the temple repented on behalf of Israel and they were banking on that. And for a lot of us, our repentance happened 13 years ago, 24 years ago, 18 months ago. And we're banking on that moment. Yet God's inviting us every day to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, to be refined by fire and purified and made more like Jesus so that tomorrow you can shine bright and bring the fire of God into this world. When we choose the world over God, even if it's in a small category of our being, we're saying, "Ah, Jesus, away with you, away with you. And I know this is going to sound harsh, but the next words are, crucify him. I have no king but this world. You don't get this part of my life, Jesus. You need to get out of here. When we don't allow Jesus to purify us, to sanctify us, when we hold back areas of our life, our money, our lust, our thinking, our worldview, our hunger for success, our desire for vengeance, when we don't allow the Lord to purify those things, we are saying, away with you, away with you. We're saying, crucify him. That's why they are not that far from us because we do the exact same thing. But it just feels less significant because theirs manifested in the physical crucifixion of Jesus, but ours is just as brutal spiritually when we're saying, I don't want you to affect this part of my life. felt like the Lord was bringing this to us this week because there is a world that needs to know Jesus and one of the problems right now is that it's getting a very cloudy view of Jesus. There are a lot of believers that have allowed a lot of stuff to cloud the message of the gospel of Jesus for this world. There's a call on all of us 
I can't submit you for purification. I'm not a priest. You might think I'm a priest. I'm not a priest. That office is gone. Jesus is our great high priest, and he presents you to the Father. You now carry the responsibility by the Spirit of God to stand before him and say the words of David, search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's Psalm 139. And this is what we do as a part of our life as we roll forward, as we submit ourselves, present ourselves to the Lord to be purified, to be brought. Everything in us that we're holding that's against him. How have I fallen in love with the world? Lord, show it to me. And then we repent and we say, that's not what I want. I want to choose you. I submit that to you. I repent of that. I turn my heart to you. I want you to grow me and shape me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's being a follower of Jesus. You know what happens to church attendance and giving when you're walking in that path? I'll just, I'll just throw this out there. If this is currently lacking joy for you, I would recommend going full-blown Psalm 139 on your own life. If life together as a church family lacks joy, that is the most perfect time. Most people look at their church and say, ah, oh, my church is kind of struggling and that kind of thing. My, my first recommendation is to go to Psalm 139. And say, Lord, where have I fallen in love with the world? Search me. Look at every part of me. Show me. Put the fire in my life so that that stuff raises to the surface. And then, Holy Spirit, I want you to remove those imperfections because I want none of the world. And I want all of you. And then joy starts to bubble out. And generosity starts to bubble out. And our love for our brothers and sisters starts to bubble out. And our contribution to the mission of God starts to flow naturally. We're not forcing it. It's just as we are made more like Jesus, the things that Jesus said and did start to flow out of us. This is an invitation to repentance, but not a one-time thing. To make a life. Lord, keep moving me forward. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thanks for just bringing your scriptures to bear. We, we need this, Lord. We need your word. We need your presence refining us. Lord, I want to ask that as we uh, step into this next moment, that you would use these elements of worship and prayer and communion, even offering, Lord, that you would use them to purify our hearts. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.